0: let's pray Lord it's a delight to be in your house and we get to be together in your house as your family brothers and sisters in Christ bought by the precious blood we are we're not cousins and we are brothers and sisters by blood your blood and because of that we long for every Sunday opportunity to worship, and every time there's an opportunity for a small group fellowship or, or prayer, Lord, we, we love to be together. And I know that these truths that P- Paul is trying to explain to us are weighty and heavy, and, and sometimes they feel burdensome. I pray today, Father, that you would use them to encourage us, to show us what you have rescued us from, because you have granted us grace and peace, not capriciously, but with a carefully intended plan to rescue all who will believe by the righteousness and the bloody death of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would speak, O Lord, by your word this morning. Protect us from error. May we be able to leave here today better equipped to communicate the gospel to those who object. And may your name be praised as we live faithfully according to your word. These things we ask, Father, with a dependent, brokenhearted asking. And in the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely a theological proposition to believe It is the the power of God unto salvation. That is, it is the power by which sinners who deserve wrath because of their sin are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. From the moment a sinner believes, God counts him or her righteous in his sight, free from the penalty of sin, free from the penalty of sin. As Paul will say in Colossians, he has nailed the certificate of debt against us to the cross. That's where you say amen. You're teachable. (laughs) The theological term here is justification, which means to declare righteous. God declares sinners righteous according to the law or as far as the law is concerned. Sometimes theologians refer to this as forensic justification, because declaring one righteous is a legal transaction that takes place in the court of the eternal judge, before whom every one of us will one day stand to give an account. There are no exceptions. The prospect of being declared righteous by God is truly good news. Yeah, there's another amen. That's, that's, that's another place where that goes. In fact, it is the most wonderful news the world has ever heard, or ever will. <laughs> Nevertheless, we must be careful not to think of the gospel merely as heavenly paperwork, ratifying God's declaration of our acquittal. And too many people do. It's it's just theological paperwork that God does. Righteous, unrighteous. Heaven, hell. And nothing else matters. And it just isn't true. You see, while God, through his gospel saves us by grace. He is very concerned about our sin. While the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, it is also the power of God by which sinners are changed and transformed from the inside out. This is profoundly illustrated in the biographical record of Saul of Tarsus. Here is a man who, before encountering the resurrected Christ, made it his ambition to discredit and destroy all who claim to be his disciples, all who claim to be disciples of Jesus. And After his own encounter with Jesus, however, Saul of Tarsus became the most passionate and effective herald of the gospel the world has ever known. It is no exaggeration to say that when he met Jesus, his whole worldview was changed. He viewed himself in a radically different way. He suddenly discovered within him a heart that, that had an, an inexplicable and unrelenting love for the person that he so hated, namely Jesus. And he became his follower. Moreover, there is nothing that he was more passionate about than proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that the long-awaited Messiah had come and was establishing his kingdom in the hearts of his people. I suspect many of you have experienced something very similar, a similar transformation of heart on the day that you had your encounter with Jesus Christ, whether it was while sitting in church listening to the gospel preached, or whether it was a friend in college, or whether it was just reading your Bible. At some point along the way, you met Jesus Christ and everything changed. Everything changed. You, you had no intention of changing it, but it all changed. It was like you suddenly discovered a treasure in a, in a field. And for joy over it, you were willing to sell everything you have to buy that field and share the treasure with everybody you knew. This is the experience of many of us. However, you probably also soon after found yourself more than a little surprised when you discovered that many people didn't want to hear the good news that you were so eager to share. It didn't seem like good news to them. How could it be? How could they, how can it be? They just thought, you became weird, or you got religion, or you became a fanatic, and maybe even dangerous. And some of those people eventually distanced themselves from you permanently. Others, however, voiced their skepticism about the message of Jesus, and raised A number of objections that you weren't even sure how to respond to. This is the common experience of new believers to this very day. And that's why so many books and and courses of study are available today to help believers know how to respond to common objections about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, If you take advantage of our evangelism course that begins on August 1st, you will will learn some of the responses to some of the objections, and you will be better equipped. So consider that an invitation. In the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, he brings us in on a conversation in which some unbelieving Jews were raising objections to the gospel To Paul's gospel, which is the gospel. Specifically, I see four objectives, uh, objections in this text that Paul addresses. But before we get back into the flow of that, and it's been kind of chopped up because I was out for a little while, and and so I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I want us to back up and, and look at this afresh. But before we do, let's Let's begin by by standing together and reading this text. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Most of this we've already covered, but it's important for us to have context. I'm going to give you more context after this. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every person were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. As I said a moment ago, there are four objections to Paul's gospel that the Jews have frequently argued In their way of thinking, if Paul says, if Paul is saying that unrepentant Jewish men and women will be judged by God for their sin, same as the Gentiles, then either the Jews have misunderstood much of the Old Testament scriptures in a significant way, or Paul is teaching false doctrine. So, which is it? Have the Jews misunderstood the Bible? Or is Paul teaching something false? Yesterday, as I was reading Romans just for my own edification, it occurred to me to ask, why do the Jews think that, that Paul's gospel starts with, with the bad news that God's own chosen people according to the flesh are in danger of being declared unfit for heaven because of their sin. Why are they under that impression? It just seems like, I mean, if if we were to be able to compress in our minds and interact with everything that we've learned so far, this, this wouldn't be difficult. But we forget. We forget what we've already learned. We forget what happened a chapter ago. Or sometimes people come to me and they say, Pastor, remember last week in that sermon? Remember when you said... And they tell me what I said, and I go, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember saying that. And so this was helpful for me. Sometimes I just go into Romans, and I just reread it, just reread it, or listen to it, or whatever. And as I was doing that, I thought, hmm, remind me, remind me, Paul, why, why the Jews thought you were teaching that? Um, and so let me show you why. Uh, The simple answer is because Paul was teaching that. That's exactly what he was saying. And and I want you to to see this. Look at uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, you... And you can just insert the word Jews here, you Jews. Therefore, you Jews have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, that is passing judgment on the Gentiles for their sin, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know, listen carefully, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, and you practice such things. So you deserve judgment. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that, and do the same yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God Do you believe you will escape the judgment of God when those who practice the same things you practice are going to be judged? You think you won't be judged? This was offensive to them. And look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man, that is, every human being who does evil. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek, that is, just a common word, for Gentiles. For God shows no, what's the word? Partiality. So why are the Jews thinking, that Paul's gospel says that you, you Jewish people, you Jewish men and women, you're in, a, you're, in a, you're in a world of hurt. Because one of these days, you will stand before the righteousness of God, the righteous judgment of God, and you will fall. You will fall. In any case, these verses are... If they're not clear enough, look at chapter 3. We'll jump ahead of our passage for the morning. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already established. And you say, well, Paul, when when did we establish that? In chapter 2. We established it in chapter 2. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not even one. Okay, so the whole issue here in Paul's gospel is that there is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you can't earn. And none is righteous, not just no Gentiles, but no Jew is righteous either. So we got a problem. And uh, the, the Jews are saying, we don't have a problem, we're Jews. We're Jews, we're God's chosen people. How can you say that we are going to be, we're going to fall in the day of judgment? So, actually, the Jews had it right when they accused Paul of publicly teaching that the Jewish people have just as much cause to fear the looming judgment of God as the Gentiles. And Paul was right to preach it, because salvation can only be received when God's threat of judgment is believed. But the Jews didn't believe it. They didn't believe they needed it. They didn't believe God would cast any Jewish person into eternal judgment. And so they attacked Paul's gospel. They attacked Paul with their objections. Now, by way of review, then, let's refresh on the first two objections just briefly. The first objective is this, Paul. Now, now let me just, as a preface here, let me just say, they're not really dialoguing with Paul in order to... Learn the truth in order to believe the truth. They hate this. And they are going to invent. Uh, Really, they're, they're coming up with word salad here. I mean, they're just mixing it all together. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. It's sophistry. It's word games. They're looking for a loophole. They're trying to tangle up Paul in such a way that they can demonstrate to their Jewish friends that Paul's loony. Paul is out there. Paul's a heretic. We don't know what happened to him on the Damascus Road, but it was bad, and don't trust him. And Paul will have none of it. And so they throw their best ideas at him. They try to complicate things and make it muddy so nobody will believe. So here is a summary of their first objection. Paul, doesn't, doesn't your gospel nullify Jewish privilege? And we've already talked about this, so let me just say a few things. This, is, this was a really relevant question because God had entered a special covenant relationship with, with them, which, you know, it was the covenant at Mount Sinai. And previous to that, it was the covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, God promised many blessings, many benefits, and many advantages that no other nation in the world was ever offered by God. Israel was God's special treasure. He repeatedly says that in the Old Testament, and we looked at all of those scriptures about a month ago. As far as the Jews were concerned, salvation was their birthright. If you were born a Jew and you got circumcised, if you were a male, You're in. You're in. Don't worry about it. In other words, they believed salvation was theirs by virtue of their Jewishness. In point of fact, their Jewishness was indeed the grounds of many blessings from God. In verse 1, for example, they ask, Then what advantage has the Jew?" What advantage does God's special treasure people, what advantage do we have? Or what value is circumcision, the mark of that covenant? And Paul answers, much in every way. You get a lot of advantages. I'm not saying you don't have any advantages. You have great advantage. For example, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God, Paul says, It was only to the nation of Israel that God entrusted the inscripturated word. That is, God's word written down in scripture. And by it, God revealed himself. By it, he revealed divine wisdom for life. Think of the book of Proverbs. Think of the Sermon on the Mount eventually. And by it, he revealed God's plan for the ages. And most importantly, he revealed how rebellious sinners can be reconciled to God, just as Saul of Tarsus was. And by the way, just as Moses was, the murderer. Some of you think, if you only knew how sinful I am. Listen, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. God's heard it all. Do not make your sin greater than God. His mercy is more, more. You say, I just can't get my mind off my sin. I get that, I get that. We are gonna battle that until he comes. And we're gonna have victory. And we're gonna have defeat. And we're gonna have struggle. But know this, God's love for you Brother or sister in Christ is infinitely greater than any sin you may have committed. And you may say, Well, I can't forgive myself. That's right, you have no authority to forgive yourself. Stop looking to yourself as the authority. Stop that. God, who created you, says, Because of Christ, you are forgiven. So receive that, believe that, burn it into your heart. Get around people who will help cultivate that in you. And when you come on Sundays, (laughs) sing God's praises because of what he's done. Didn't you enjoy the the worship this morning, the singing this morning? All of this is worship, but the singing part. So carefully chosen words. And, And Kyle, you should know there are a couple of people this morning in Cal 101, who said one of the things that kept them here at at Calvary Bible Church is when they started hearing the music and it was biblical and it was truth and it wasn't just emotion. So Paul's argument against which the Jews rallied was not that they, the Jews, had no special privileges, but that those privileges, as amazing as they were, could not save them from the just and righteous judgment of God for their sin. Salvation from God's judgment could only come through faith in their Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. That's what they didn't want to believe, that Jesus, the carpenter, baby, the one who cared little for their man-made regulations, that he was the son of God. They didn't want to believe that. And you know what? The disciples didn't even believe it rightly. That brings us to the second objection. The second objection to Paul's gospel went like this. Doesn't Paul's gospel make God unfaithful? You see what they're doing? They're trying to twist things to make it sound like Paul's blaspheming. And in order to do it, they've got to come up with these crazy arguments and complicated. Remember I told you this is uh, arguably, at least almost every, maybe every commentator I've read or, or listened to has said this is the most complicated passage in the book of Romans. And the reason I think it's so complicated is because the Jews are are intentionally making it complicated because they want to smear Paul. And look at verses 3 and 4. Here's what the Jews ask, so to speak. What if some were unfaithful? What if some of us unbelievers, uh, uh, us Jews, what if some of us We're unfaithful. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, listen, all of us, they saw themselves as a group. We are the Jews. We are God's chosen people. I mean, if if a few of us sin, I mean, even if they sin in extraordinary ways, even if they sin a little bit, if they break God's law in minor areas, I mean, is God going to toss us aside? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, Paul? Is that what you're saying? And Paul counters by saying, may it never be. Remember the Greek word I taught you last time, meganoita. No, not ever, not ever, as Sproul said. Don't even think about it. It's never true. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, if every person on the planet was saying, If one of the Jews faded away or one of the the, the Jews uh, committed unrighteousness and God condemned them, then God would be unrighteous. If everybody says that, if everybody adopts that, that stupid argument, God says, I don't care. It doesn't change me at all. Let every man be a liar. I will not change. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now it's interesting, when, whenever you read a statement like this in the middle of a paragraph where it says, uh, as it is written, you need to ask yourself, where was it written? And we looked at that last time, and it came from Psalm 51, David's confession of sin. And this objection The Jews are appealing to the promises of God. Didn't God promise that he would bring his people into his kingdom forever? Didn't he say the Lord himself will accomplish this? Indeed he did. What they had forgotten, however, was that a true Jew, they forgot two things. Number one, (laughs) that a true Jew is not one outwardly but inwardly. By the spirit, not by the letter. It's not your Jewishness. It's not your traditions. It's it's not your practices and your sacrifices. And there was something else that they had forgotten. Namely, that God's promises to them were not only to bless and save if they believed and obeyed, but also... God promised to bring upon them tribulation and distress for disobedience, idolatry, and unbelief. They forgot that there was not only a Mount Gerizim where after refreshing on the law in Deuteronomy, the priests proclaimed the promised blessings of the Lord. It's like they, they completely forgot about the other mountain, Mount Ebal, upon which the elders and the priests stood and proclaimed all of the curses that would come upon them if they turned their backs on the Lord in preference for idolatry. God would be just as faithful, listen carefully to this, God would be just as faithful to uphold the promises of judgment as the promises of blessing. He is faithful to all of his promises. And once again, they mistakenly thought that they were exempt from the threat of judgment on the grounds of their Jewishness. In their minds to suggest otherwise is tantamount to questioning the faithfulness of God who cannot change. Is this what you were saying, Paul? Paul, is this what you're teaching? That God is unfaithful to his people. Paul says, Meganoita. No, not now, not ever, not in a million years will God fail to keep his promises. And, And one of those promises is that he will bring judgment upon every unbelieving Jew, just as he had when, because of their unbelief at the border of the promised land, God sentenced them to wander for 40 years until every male in that generation died in the desert because of their unbelief. That was an act of God's judgment on the Jews. And in the end, there could be no doubt. God had been faithful to his promises. Even though the promise was, you will wander in the desert until you're dead. It was according to his covenant. So while it's true that the Jews had received many special privileges from God, none of those privileges had the power to save them from the wrath of God because of their sin. In fact, David, whom Paul quotes in this passage Is the great biblical example of a prominent Jew who knew that he deserved God's judgment for sin, because of his dealings with Bathsheba and her husband, and and how did he respond? So here's Paul coming to the Jews and saying, "You're sinners all, and you deserve God's judgment." And they were saying, "No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not." And a lot of people think that. That's why in 1 John, John has to say, if you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar. And you're calling God a liar. And so we have this example of David. Nathan comes and says, "Nathan, uh, David, you're a sinner deserving God's judgment. And David responds quite differently than the Jews. He responded to his sin and the threat of judgment with broken, contrite, repentance, and faith. Paul was simply employing the Jews of his day to follow the example of the brokenhearted king of Israel. If anyone merited a pass, a license, a carte blanche relative to Judgment against his sin, it was was the king of Israel. It was the man after God's own heart. And yet he didn't claim that. He didn't claim that he had a pass. David was absolutely convinced that whatever judgment God may have chosen to pronounce against him for his sin, it would be a just and holy and proper judgment. Judgment. And he would have nothing to say in response. We are unprofitable servants. You who will, maybe you will allow me to repeat something similar to what I said a couple of weeks ago. My dear friends, you and I are the beneficiaries of so many spiritual blessings and privileges. It's so easy to deceive ourselves into assuming that God must love us very much and have a special place reserved for us in heaven because we faithfully attended church most weeks and we read our Bibles once in a while and we listen to Christian music And we participate in various ministries at the church when it's convenient. But none of these benefits and privileges can pay the price for your sin. None of them. That's what's at stake. It's not a matter of, does God like you? Are you likable to him? No, no, no. The question is, has your sin been paid for? Dear friend, listen to me. Religious people die and wake up in hell every day. That's why Jesus warned that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. We had another funeral this week and my wife and I went out to the um, military cemetery out in um, out near uh, um, no it's not in Cedar Hill is it? it is right near Baptist uh, Dallas Baptist University thank you honey and for all of the who were trying to <laughs> insert words that I couldn't draw out of my mouth yes and you know what struck me? Everywhere you look, there, there are these stones, these marker stones. I don't to call them uh, casket stones or whatever. And they're perfectly aligned, and there are thousands of them. And then you look over here, and there's grass, and there's a whole crew with a backhoe. And it's, it's like their whole career is, is nothing but digging holes. And when you drive in, there's three lanes. And they will tell you what lane you're supposed to be in before you get there. And you get in your lane. And when everybody's together, they take you to a place. You have 30 minutes. And lane two has 30 minutes. Lane three has 30 minutes. And by the time these three lanes are done, the the lanes are filled again with other people who are coming to lay to rest, as we say, the remains of their loved one. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. You will die. I will die. The way is narrow, however. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, Jesus says. And those who find it are few. You want to know why? Well, I suspect it's because It's so difficult to let go of our pride and throw ourselves on the mercy of the court like David did. I suspect it's because we prefer to earn our way to heaven, the old-fashioned way, which never was a way. And I suspect it's because we love the approval of others over a relationship with a just and holy God. He makes us uncomfortable too often. You go to turn a movie on and he's there in your heart going, Huh? Eh? No, nope. no, we're not gonna watch that. Jesus, don't you have some shopping to do? Isn't there something else you could be doing? We we don't like his holy presence. I plead with you this morning to approach the narrow gate and come to Jesus with broken hearted transparency about your sin come to him with broken-hearted repentance and godly grief come to him with broken-hearted cries for mercy come with broken-hearted love for christ because he bore the full measure of the wrath of god on the cross in your place the gate may be small and the way may be hard but listen to me the door is still open For anyone who will come, won't you come? Won't you come? Jesus himself has said, come, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Follow me. Well, returning to our text this morning, Paul Paul's response to the latest Jewish objection is, no, God has never failed to keep his promises And if he sends them into everlasting punishment prepared for the devil and his angels, he will do it as an act of faithfulness to his promise, not a breach of his promise. And this brings us to the third and fourth objections the Jews brought against Paul's gospel. Number three, doesn't Paul's gospel make God unrighteous? You see what they're doing? They're trying to get people to view Paul in a certain way. Same as they did with Jesus. And the same as some will do to you as you try to be faithful with sharing the gospel. Once again, the objection of the Jews has to do with, their, with that part of Paul's gospel that says unbelieving Jews will have to face divine judgment because of their sin, same as the Gentiles. Verses 5 and 6 are especially difficult to get our heads around. And, and, and honestly, you don't have to worry about getting your head around it. Because it's foolishness. But, but let's, let's cover it anyway. 5 and 6 are especially difficult because we have to insert the objection that Paul assumes that we understand. He's heard it a thousand times as he's dealt with Jews and they've come up with these sophistries. Look at verses 5 and 6. Again, we're in Romans 3. But if our unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way. By no means, there's that word again, meganoita. For then how could God judge the world? There's an unstated premise here that the Jews are using as a prop for this misguided objection. The premise is that sin or unrighteousness of men serves to magnify God's righteous glory. That's the premise. They believe that is true. Do you believe that's true? Not trying to trick you here. That man's sinfulness gives opportunity for, the, for God to be glorified? The answer to that question is absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed, this is, not only, this is not a far-fetched idea. We know from the Old Testament that God judged sinners for the purpose of setting his glory on display. And he can do that because he's God let me just give you some samples here isaiah 516 but the lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy god shows himself holy in righteousness or in righteous dealings with people exodus 14 again we're talking about how god uses sin to exalt he is glory. So I, Ezekiel 14, I'm sorry, Exodus fourteen four, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we're not going there yet. And he will pursue them. That is the Israelites who are running away from Egypt. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What's God's goal here? that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He gets glory out of that wicked sinfulness. Joshua seven nineteen. this is the story of, you know, they, had, they, they crossed the Jordan River. They get to the other side. Jericho's there. God through a miracle. Demolishes the walls. They all fall outward. And, and the people go in and they have a great victory. They go to the next town, the little, little bitty town, Called I or Ai, and they loose, and they don't know why. And, jo- and uh, uh, Joshua is all upset, and he's praying, and he's complaining, and God says, Stop. There is sin in the camp. And they narrow it down to Achan, who did what God had explicitly forbidden he'd taken some of the gold and hid it under his tent. And men died because of the judgment of God at the hands of that little bitty town against God's great nation. Joshua 7, 19 then, Joshua said to Achan, my son, okay, so he's pronouncing judgment on him, right? My son, give glory to God. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide any of it from me. He was about to be put to to death. God had Joshua say, as your last breath, my Jewish brother, give glory to God. Ezekiel 7:27 The king mourns and the prince is wrapped in despair and at the hands of the people of the land who are they're paralyzed by terror according to their way I will do to them and according to their judgments I will judge them and they shall know that I am the Lord God was sending an army to destroy them Ezekiel 38, 23. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and then they will know that I am the Lord. You see, the Jews weren't making this up. The Jews understood that God would be glorified even through the sin of his people. And so it's true That the sin of man and his condemnation for sin magnifies the glory of God. But the second half of the premise is mistaken. Namely, that since God benefits, God benefits from our sin, that is, by magnifying his glory, it is wrong for God to judge them. Lord, you're you're getting a benefit out of this. That's not fair. Or the language of this verse, their complaint is that God would be unrighteous to judge those whose sin results in God's glory because God is benefiting. And that's not right, so they say. This is a classic example of the fallacy of the the ends justifies the means The problem with their way of thinking, however, is that if God were to withhold judgment from Jewish sinners, then he would have no basis, no grounds upon which he would judge the world. Because he would be an unrighteous judge who has no right to judge anyone. God, however, cannot be capricious in his judgment. He is not an unjust judge. Therefore, he must judge sinners, no matter what that sinner's lineage may be. And every Jew believed that God would one day judge the world. They didn't believe that God would give the world a pass. They were hoping. You think of Jonah again. he were hoping that God would judge the Gentiles, the nations. In Psalm 9, 8, 7 and 8 we read, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And so you see, God has to judge the world. There has to be judgment. There has to be judgment. This is so important for us to understand. And those of you who study worldview, and, and some of you are my students in, in terms of worldview and And just insert this part into your worldview, that there must be judgment. judgment. You know, let me just, let me get some help here from uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a a brilliant theologian. Uh, Schreiner suggests that, quote, if there is no final judgment, then there there is no moral universe at all. If there is not a final reckoning, there's no such thing as good or evil. There's only preferences. Everything is relative. Nothing really matters. But the Jews don't believe that for a minute. They believe there is justice and injustice. And one day the Gentiles will get justice. And in reality, no one believes this. No one believes that God will not judge Morality only makes sense in the world, in which there is judgment. At the end of the day, everyone believes in right and wrong. Everyone knows intuitively that justice demands injustice demands just justice. Injustice demands justice, and you can be all philosophical and say there is no God and there is no there is no judgment. And then somebody comes and punches you in the nose and runs away. Or someone robs a package from your door or breaks into your car, and suddenly you become a believer. (laughs) And so the Jews were wrong. The judgment of Jewish sinners does not make God unrighteous. To the contrary, it proves that he is righteous in all his deeds and justifies He's justified in what he does and how he judges. He judges the world with righteousness. And he will judge every sinner with righteousness. As we'll see later on in Romans, God must be just and the justifier. He can't just be a justifier. If he was only a justifier, that is, declaring sinners sinners righteous, then he would be an unrighteous judge. He must be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And we'll get there when it comes. And this brings us to the fourth and final objection. Does Paul's gospel make God unjust? And this is very similar. It's, It's hard to tell whether this is two arguments or one. But the objection is similar to the previous. Here's how Paul presents his, uh, his response on behalf of the objectors, or this is how he presents what the objectors are saying, verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Very similar argument. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. This is basically objection three revisited. It's just a different spin on the third objection. These Jews are looking for any kind of loophole that would exempt them from the judgment that Paul is telling them about. And notice that this argument corresponds to chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganoita. Don't even think about it. And then he, he will explain why. But it's the same thing. It's, it's really interesting as you're studying Romans. He'll make a, a short statement. For example, when he said, when the Jews asked, is, is there no benefit for the Gentiles? I mean, for the Jews? And Paul says, yes, of course, in every way. For example, and then you think he's going to give a long list. And he says, you were given the scriptures. And then he doesn't finish the list. But when you get to Romans chapter nine, he finishes the list. And so here he introduces this idea that the Jews were laying out this complicated argument, this, this sophistry, and he, he just, he snaps and he, he makes a comment and, and it's done. But when we get to chapter six, he's gonna go back there. He's gonna unpack it. God makes no allowance for sin. And the fact that man's sin gives opportunity For God's saving grace to shine has no bearing on whether he and we will face divine judgment for our sin. All sin must be punished. There are only two options. Either you can pay it yourself or let someone else. And there's only one person qualified to bear your sin. Either the person can bear his own penalty for their own sin, in eternal condemnation, or he can fly to Christ. It's what the cross was about. I'm I'm amazed as I share the gospel with people on airplanes and whatever, and I explain what the cross was about, and and they say, I've never heard that before. Never heard that before. I mean, I've heard Jesus died on the cross, but none of it made any real sense to me. I mean, I, I, I didn't rebel against it necessarily? I mean, I I just didn't know. When you explain what the cross was about, that God was unleashing all, the fullness of all of his wrath upon sinners on the back of Jesus Christ, then you will understand the cross and why he had to live for 33 years as a man and fulfilling all righteousness because what do we need we need the righteousness that we don't have in ourselves because we can't earn it we got to get it from somewhere we get it from Christ Christ our righteousness but not only that but we needed our sins to be atoned for and Jesus is our atonement he is the sacrifice behold the Lamb of God John the Baptist said who takes away the sins of of the world beloved do you believe that do you believe that Jesus is your righteousness your sanctification your redemption your salvation if you've never considered this before I plead with you to do it today and if this is your heartbeat then rejoice with us and give glory to God let's pray Oh, Father, you're so good to us, not only in doing these things, but you could have done them and not revealed these truths in a book, but you have given us the inscripturated word. So we know, we know, and we have been changed. Oh, Father, I pray for any man, woman, or child this morning who realizes for the first time what Jesus has done for them, that you would give them a heart to fly to it and receive it with great joy with broken-hearted joy we pray in Jesus name